Hey there, chitheads, and welcome back to another episode of Board Chitless. It's been a short while, but I'm Lecky, and I'm joined today by... Tristan! And this week, we're going to be talking about something that's pretty much unfamiliar to both of us. It's 1565, St. Elmo's Pay. It's the sequel what? to 1066, uh, Tears to Many Mothers. Have you heard about this one, Tristan? It's uh, it's an up-and-coming card game based on historical no, uh, matters. It sounds intriguing. That title sounds odd. I don't know where that comes from. Mm, yeah, it's probably going to be guff, but we should look at it anyway. I mean, someone's sponsoring this podcast. Well, apparently, it's about the uh, the Great Siege of Malta, um, <laughs> and it's the greatest game that's ever been made about anything. So, um, yeah, we should definitely give it attention. Fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, we we, uh, so we launched this game on Kickstarter at the start of October, um, and 1565 St. Elmo's Pay is, as you say, the follow-up to 1066. Tears to Many Mothers, our, our sophomore game from Hollow Nothing Productions. And it follows the same sort of format as 1066 it, because it has the same sort of, it's the same mechanics, the same game system, but with all new art, all new story, all new history, new card abilities and everything. So it, whereas 1066 is all about the lead up to um, and the actual Battle of Hastings, this is all about the, the Great Siege of Malta uh, where the Ottoman Turks besieged the Knights of St. John and their Maltese people in 1565. So it's uh, basically another massive excuse for me to stick my head in the history books with a highlighter pen and just uh, go through it all and, and bathe in the history and then try and sort of funnel that with the stories and the little vignettes that came through during the battle and the lead up to the battle and try and um, recapture a sense of that in the game uh, using amazingly talented artists from around the world to uh, to bring it to life fantastic um 1565 that's just shy of being 500 years later um it's like the people that had this battle didn't pay any attention to your future ambitions um but that's a lot of technology moving on there as you notice when you were doing your research is um things have moved on a little bit in terms yeah, of weapons in way, uh, well in lots of ways um in other ways it reminded me that since then, things haven't moved on that much. Um, so, one of the one of the big sort of elements in in terms of like the the technology and the, the combat, they were using gunpowder in 1565, which wasn't really a thing or wasn't actually remotely a thing in 1066. Uh, in 1066, they had crossbows. In 1565, they were using guns, but they also had trench warfare. So they built uh, ditches and trenches, and the they you know shot at each other from over the top of these trenches, and that's exactly how World War One and World War Two, and right the way up to the Falklands War, they were still digging trenches and shooting at each other from outside the trenches. So that was quite interesting. But in terms of comparing the technology from uh, the Siege of Malta to the Battle of Hastings, then yeah, things have had moved on enormously because because of the gunpowder, not just in the arquebuses that they were shooting at each other, but also the cannons and the gigantic cannonballs that were blasted backwards and forwards um, across the three frontiers that the Siege of Malta took place over, which was um, the Fortress of St. Elmo's, which the game is named after, which is was a tiny little fortress at the top of Mount Sybaras, which hovered over the bay of Malta, the harbour. Right. And then there were two other fortresses down in the bay on two frontiers, uh, Senglia and Burgu. And those three frontiers are what the game takes place over in the same way that the Battle of Hastings was fought over three sort of wedges of troops. The Siege of Malta was also fought over these three frontiers. So the mechanics of the first game sort of dovetailed quite beautifully with 
um, St Elmo's Pay as well. Um, and but it got it gave me the opportunity to try and come up with loads of new card mechanics and stuff. So, for example, the artillery guys function differently from the ranged archers and crossbowmen from 1066, and now an artillery attack will hit every card in that particular frontier. So it, they're really powerful, basically. Nice. But to sort of compensate for that, they have limited ammunition, so they run out and they can exhaust themselves, basically. So that was one element of it. Another was basically, again, from reading the stories about what the knights and what the Turks did to each other during the battles, yeah. each, each of the events that I read about was like, oh, how do, how do I fit that into the game? You know, how to make an ability in a card game that reflects what they were doing. So there are some epic stories. For example, the knights at one point were being attacked uh, by the Ottoman Turks who'd rolled up a, a, a siege tower right. to one of their fortresses. And the, these siege towers were like the ones from Return of the King, yeah. gigantic wheeled towers with snipers at the top of them. And the, the Ottomans wheeled this tower up to the fort at uh, Burgu and had these snipers shooting down into the courtyard, and they were just taking out the knights left, right, and center. So the, um, the knights pulled out the bricks beneath the siege tower and ran outside of their own fortress, ran up the siege tower and killed all of the troopers at the top and took over the siege tower <laughs> to use it against the, uh, the Turkish armies. So there's a, there's like a, a bold ability in the game where yeah. knights can actually, um, in effect, destroy themselves to take enemy artillery and use it as their own. So now in 1565, St. Elmo's Pay, you have these cards going across from one side of the battlefield to the other. And another thing that happened quite frequently throughout the siege was that the Christians would defect to the Muslim side and vice wow. versa. So you have the, these defections as well, where cards are sort of jumping over the parapets yeah. and lending information to each other. And that, again, is reflected in the gameplay by cards being able to... Basically, you can pinch your opponent's cards if you if you play well enough. Um, and so like coming, there, there are a whole host of other abilities as well, but coming yeah. up with all of those and trying to sort of thematically implement these like bold strategies and new technologies that were so essential to the, the Siege of Malta and how it was fought was a really interesting task from a design point of view and also to breathe new life into this system so that it wasn't just a, the exact same game as 1066 but with different artwork which um, it you know it could quite easily have been but I think this way it gives uh, players new incentives to sort of get involved and see what's different and also all of the artwork is brand new and all of the playing yeah. text on every single card and once again the whole game is based on actual history actual events real people real characters and as much as we've let our artists take license and, and do what they can with the images, they also had um, strict instructions to try and adhere to the armor and the clothing and the yeah. weapons of the time. Uh, to such an extent that one of the images that came back to me was uh, submitted by an artist and it was a picture of a knight and it was a really cool image. But he had a dueling pistol in each hand and it looks very sort of almost John Woo kind of, yeah. well, you know, sort of too cool. And so I sent this email back to the artist saying, oh, you know, this is a brilliant image, but it's a bit too modern. I'm, I'm not sure we'd have those specific um, pistols. You know, I think maybe it perhaps have an arquebus or a musket or, um, you know, even a crossbow. And the artist emailed me back a photo of two um, 16th century <laughs> dueling pistols. <laughs> 
which he'd used as inspiration. And I was like, oh, that is absolutely fantastic because it's it's at the point now where yeah. um, rather than me sort of having to iron out the exact sort of look that we want to go for, the artists are teaching me about the history as well, you know. So that was really fantastic and adds that sort of extra layer of authenticity to, to the game. Um, and of course, the coming up with the idea in your head is one thing, but having like these amazingly talented people um, bring the characters and the weaponry yeah. and artillery and everything to life is just, for me, that's a huge buzz. One of my favourite things about this job is getting an email in the morning of, uh, what do you think of these pictures? And I'm like, yeah! <laughs> so, Wait, well, that's it. It's so, obviously yeah, inspiring them, isn't it? It's like, you know, there's one thing to brief somebody on a job, well, they're getting, you know, getting paid to do some artwork and another one for them to actually get excited about it and come back with their own ideas on it. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And, um, you know, where possible, we'll buy them um, books with pictures of the artillery and weaponry and stuff. I send photos and whatever research materials we can. But it's, as you say, it's even better when they come back with their own ideas and they're like, well, what about this? And, you know, what about this sort of armor and, and that? And some of it I was like, well, I don't know, that guy, that knight on horseback looks like he should be out of King Arthur, you know, like the, the legends of King Arthur. And then they'll send me a picture of a knight in armour in the museum in Malta, and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's use that then. So, no, it's been, that's been a, a, just a joy um, to be able to, to work with those guys and, and also just to um, get so embroiled in the history of it all. It's, the, the, the siege itself would make an amazing Hollywood movie. You know, like, it's yeah. so epic, the clash, the back and forth, the fact that every other day the battle turned on a dime you know in one way and then swung back the other way and again like the battle of hastings like two oddly evenly matched sides duking it out for the for the fate of in this case you know europe really so um so capturing that and 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 dwelling on that has been brilliant and so we, I mean, we launched the Kickstarter at the start of October, and uh, it funded in four hours, which was That's incredible. amazing. Because, yeah, because again, it's you know this is a, a pretty niche battle that not everyone has heard of, uh, even though like <laughs> some historians describe it as the greatest siege in history. It's not that, that massively well known, but it did bring together lots of different elements that were represented by the different langs they were called of yeah. the Knights of St John. Um, so you've got almost almost all of Europe represented in these 500 knights that were defending. Then you've got the Maltese people who made up the majority of the defending forces. And then you've got the vast array of people that were fighting for the Ottoman Turks at the time as well. So it brings together all these different geographical and historical threads and uh, ties them together in this one epic siege, which um, you know was utterly brutal and lasted for weeks. But it seems to have collectively of interest to the people that have, have jumped in and you know have, have, have supported it so either that's people who are um returning backers because this is our sixth kickstarter now so we have like a really lovely and loyal fan base who will return from you know almost everything that we do and um, but then it's a load of new faces as well and i even have personal messages from actual knights of st john who are still actively involved in the order and who tell me that they're not allowed to have the armor and weapons anymore, yeah. but they still they still function as the as the Knights of St John under a Grand Master. Oh, wow. um, and so yeah, it's been it's been amazing to get like these different stories from people and teachers. We get a lot of teachers who back the games who are interested in it from a almost scholastic point of view and like teaching it to the classes and stuff, yeah. which is for me that's amazing. You know, that's, that's probably the apotheosis of what we can achieve with, with a game like this is 
is getting it into schools and getting um, kids learning about it through the game. I mean, that was just, that would just be a dream come true for me. So it's yeah, it's a real um, it's a real pleasure and it's a real indulgence as well. You know, we <laughs> like like fantasy games sell much more easily and more quickly. Um, so the fact that we're able to push like a what could have been a dry historical theme, but make it cool, a, like a successful game out of it, is yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good stories in there, and with 1066, you know, half the fun was going through all the flavor text and the cards as they were coming up. And I imagine this one's going to be even better with all the explosions, and you know, there's some epic artwork going on <laughs> yeah. here with like you know, knights, knights with uh, rifles, knights with swords, um, and also like how colorful it is as well. He's you know, you expect something to be you know historically based to be quite dry and drab, but there's especially the Ottoman um, artwork. There's some really cool yeah. stuff going on. Um, Absolutely. So you mentioned. Sorry, before, yeah, no, it's okay. You mentioned before it's like your sixth Kickstarter. Um, do you feel that you're like your experience now? You've turned into a bit of a well-oiled machine at Hall and nothing that's helped you to fund so quickly. <laughs> Not remotely. <laughs> <laughs> Every single time it feels like pressing the reset button and just like starting again and crossing the fingers and hoping. I think if I objectively zoom out and look at it, and yes, you know we're extremely lucky to be in a position where we have an audience, uh, an existing audience who've shown up and funded it and continue to fund it because as I know directly from personal experience, it's impossible, it feels impossible to get that audience the first time around, you know, to get yourself established and, and have your first Kickstarter fund is extremely difficult. So I'm thankful every day uh, for the people that do show up and, and allow us to keep doing this. And it's like building that audience before you launch your first Kickstarter is such a hard thing to do yeah and what we're able to do of course is to send out reminders to our existing backers of other games and say hey if you liked what we did with shadows killforth or in this case you know more 1066 tears to many mothers yeah then hopefully you'll really love this and as you say visually it's strays quite far away from what we did uh, last time which was kind of a sort of bleached and bleak color palettes for previous games although we did try to induce more, more and more color with 1066 but with 1565 that's a huge component of it was that these Ottoman Turks turned up in these lavishly gorgeous, brilliant silk robes with these exotic turbans and all these beautiful colours. And similarly, the knights had uh, embroidered armour and yeah. cloaks and everything. So it's, again, given the artists carte blanche to create these really vivid images. And I think that definitely gives it a different look and feel to our previous games. And as you say, it takes away a bit of the sort of dryness that comes with Classic kind of historical hex and chip type games, yeah. which can be quite dry and calculated. And this, I've always said, it's basically me trying to make a Magic the Gathering version <laughs> of history that you know that doesn't have the horrible sort of collector mentality to it. So yeah. you get everything in the game, everything in the box, but that it will still be as beautiful as game like Magic the Gathering and that kind of artwork, but actually reflecting real people, so that people might go away and remember something about history rather yeah. than the comparative strengths of a Shivan dragon or a Pokemon. <laughs> well, speaking about um, getting people involved in collecting and hooked, you know, you're just trying to like draw more and more people in to keep buying your stuff. Um, did you, and one of the things with 1066, when you started talking about 1565 is what you wanted it to be um, cross compatible. So you could get one of the, like the Saxons fighting the Ottomans. Did you manage to pull that off with the design? It was, must have been quite a lot to think about. Was that something that actually came to fruition with this game? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's tough because there's always that tendency to have like um, a power creep when you start doing expansions or, you know, expansions to yeah. existing games and stuff. So there's a, there's a kind of strict, well, a, a flexible but fairly strict <laughs> mathematical formula behind the development of the cards okay. and the total amount of might and zeal and the total cost of the cards in the decks. And so stopping that from getting out of control is 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 one of the major focuses of the game when when you're designing it. Yeah. And my method for doing that is to start off and go crazy and go, wow, you know, the giant basilisk on the Turkish side was this big, almost indestructible cannon that could level a fortress. So let's th- make that mega, you know, have maximum in everything, like, and then, you know, sort of come down from that and try and bring it in line with um, the previous game and, and make sure that it balances out. Um, and to that extent, the game is compatible with 1066, so you yeah. can pitch the Turks against the Saxons or the Normans against the Knights or St. John or, or, you know, whichever sort of combination you wanted to do. There are elements in the new game that will feel crazy the first time you come across them. You know, if you have uh, a bunch of cavalry facing down a giant basilisk cannon, yeah. then uh, things are going to go badly. <laughs> but luckily, the decks in 1066 also have advantages which the new decks don't have and they have counters for the big stuff so if you're playing against someone who is focusing on building their artillery yeah then depending on how well you know 1066 you can play your saxons or your normans in such a way that you'll have a counter for their big stuff yeah and then their regular stuff their regular armies function evenly against each other and will also um, hopefully function evenly against the, the Normans and the Saxons. Certainly the playtesting's proven out that it's all it all comes out quite evenly in the wash. Um, but it always depends on player experience. And I think with a game like this, you are kind of beholden to the look of the draw, but it's how you deal with the hand that you're given. And we always suggest to experienced players that you use the, like, the drafting variant. So when you're drawing a hand at the end of every turn, in the standard game we say just draw two cards because it's going to be too hard for you to sort of grasp initially all the cards that you're going to need to play the game. But once you played it a few times, we say draw four and keep two. And then that way, or draw three and keep one. Yeah. And that way you're sort of sifting your deck and getting through to the cards that you want more quickly. Um, so experienced players will be able to do that. And if you take an experienced 1066 player and place them on, against like a 1565 noob with decks from like <laughs> the related games, yeah. then uh, you know they should still be able to have a really good chance of taking out the, the 1565 player. So yeah, I mean, there was a huge focus for me and it will be as we continue to if we continue to do this line of games, which I would love to do, would be if we get you know into a modern day era where you've got yeah. guns and stuff, machine guns and things, then finding a way that makes it compatible so that we don't lose sight of the fact that uh, the Normans should still be an effective force against whatever armies are introduced in the future, even if they have cool new abilities and stuff. Yeah, uh, there should be a counter for that. And so, and it kind of it almost innately does balance those things out so you have these incredible uh, knights cards that can go and steal the artillery from the the turkish forces well they're kind of neutered straight away against the uh, saxons and normans yeah. because they won't have any artillery to steal so there's there's always this sort of back and forth uh, push between the decks where some cards uh, will become more or less useful depending on the, the situation which is exactly how it plays out when you play a game that's contained within that era so if you that's play cool. 1066, depending on the circumstances that you're playing against each other, you know, some cards will be more valuable than others. Yeah. You might be looking for a, a card with high zeal or a ranged attack, an archer, you know, or um, a berserker or a house call or 
you know, you might have your own specific strategy, and that will change based on the current uh, layout of the battlefield and what your enemy's bringing in. So, well, that's so, it. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, your question, I know, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that my first couple of games playing um, this, just the straight up version of 1565, like the second I get any of those, um, you know, um, cannon return fire cars where I can go take over the enemy cannons, I'm just going to like fill my hand with those and hold on to them <laughs> until the cannons turn up <laughs> and just wreck yeah. my game because of it. Um, yeah. I can just see it happening so so clearly well, in my mind's that's, eye. That's a valid strategy, but you know, you like you say, you could wreck your game because you'll be hanging on to it for long enough that you're cluttering up your hand and exactly. you need to be doing other stuff. You still need to tackle the objectives in the same way that you did with 1066. Mustafa Pasha and John Pariso de Valette, the leaders of uh, the Turks and the, the Knights, had their own series of objectives to overcome. And so that's exactly represented uh, again in this game with different uh, stats and different attributes and stuff. But um, you, you still have to overcome those to get to the battle in the first place. And once again, it presents this game of two hearts where you have to build your army and overcome these objectives, but then you also have to be ready and in place, ready for the big rook at the end, yeah. which in the original was Battle of Hastings and this is the siege itself. So um, it's still that back and forth gameplay of messing with your opponent as much as possible whilst building your own, hopefully unstoppable army. Definitely. And speaking of that final rook, you've um, tweaked the health a little bit of the uh, the three central columns. So it, that looks interesting. Yeah. Well, I've wanted it to reflect the way that the battle went. So the the fortress at St Elmo, the uh, the titular fortress of St Elmo, toppled first, but it was. The, it was a Pyrrhic victory for the Turks because they lost so much, like so much manpower and so much um, like ammunition, yeah. and they they got dysentery. They had disease running through the camps just because of the sheer amount of time that it took to take that fortress down. So in the game, it's represented that that will almost certainly topple first. So I've given that a lower health value, as you say in, yeah. in 1066. All three wedges have 10 health. Uh, so in this game, St. Elmo's usually falls first, which is kind of, you know, it, it follows the theme. But it also then makes it a more interesting battle for the for the remaining two frontiers, we call them, in this game, rather than wedges. Yeah. Uh, at Burgo and Sengi, which were more heavily fortified and had more troops. And so they have progressively higher values. And so Senglia has 10 health and the final, the Knight's Fortress at Burgo has 12 health. So you'd almost expect that to be the one that's the tiebreaker, as it were. Yeah. Uh, but it, it doesn't always play out that way because it depends, you know, the, how you fashion your forces and where you, you place your men, you know, where you are most heavily defended or most heavily aggressive, which again was was the options open to the Ottoman Turks is where they would attack first. And they chose St. Elmo's because as soon as they took it, they could then bring in their ships yeah. uh, and have those as backup as well. And so it made sense for them to, to try and take St. Elmo's, but the fact that it took so long meant that they ran out of resources and it got closer and closer to the Maltese forces getting relief from Europe, which yeah. sort of uh, came through in, in two separate stages. But yeah, from a game point of view, it really allowed us to change that end game a little bit. Even just tweaking those stats, it throws such a sort of curveball into the way that you strategize about how you want to finish it. And there are also a few cards in this game that allow you to damage wedges early. So oh, depending nice. on how you play, you could use sappers to start weakening the defenses of one of these fortresses, or you can play outright explosion attacks <laughs> that will uh, that will smash you know damage down onto these fortresses. So you might decide 
I'm going to bank on taking St. Elmo's first, but I'm going to also try and smash down the defences at one of these other fortresses in the meantime, so that I can do a sort of two-pronged assault when it comes to the final siege, which again sort of changes the dynamic uh, quite a little bit as well. So it's been a really fun thing to tweak, and and you make that tweak in the design process. I think originally it was like, one had five health, one had ten yeah. health, one had fifteen health. You know, and all of a sudden you, you find oh, we've got to sort of rein that back in a little bit, and you know, tussle with the numbers as much as possible to make it an enjoyable experience rather than just like a, you know, a white map walkover <laughs> type situation. It, it sounds like it's a really fun game to develop. Um, speaking of which, whereabouts is the game at now? So once you've funded in a couple of weeks' time, what? How long will people be waiting for their copy of the game? Do you reckon? So I've put a kind of ridiculous estimate on there of delivering in like September next year. I've only really put that because we've had such a tough time trying to get games out and yeah. historically, but this is the first time we've had a completed game by the end of the Kickstarter. So usually our games are kind of renowned for having loads of artwork, which they do, and which this does as well. But we're in a unique position of having all of the artwork complete and the playtesting is almost wrapped up. We're in the final round of playtesting now so fingers crossed we should just be able to sort of send these files straight over to the printers and, and turn it around really quickly but i don't want to sort of um over promise and under deliver much better to do it the other way around and some people are like well if it's not coming until the end of next year then i'm not going to back it and it, that's fine if if it turns out that we are able to deliver earlier then maybe that'll bring those people back but i'd, I'd always rather be sort of hedge my bets on the actual delivery date rather than sort of go, yeah, we're going to deliver four or five months' time and then have issues with fulfillment or shipping or anything yeah. outside of my control and then have to do that damage control, which we've done before, you know, and we've had all kinds of reasons for projects being delayed. Um, and so I, in anticipating that, we've just tried to be as speculative as possible. Yeah, it's sensible. Yeah. It's very pragmatic of you to be thinking that way. And, <laughs> it's you always know, the first time for everything. <laughs> that's it. And, uh, but hopefully, you know, like you're saying, everything's pretty much lined up. So people may be surprised. I think it's an absolutely fantastic looking game. Put a little bit of money to it. Um, I think people should head to Kickstarter and give the game a good look. I'm going to ask you, where else can people learn about the game? You've got so much information on the Kickstarter page that I don't think there's actually anywhere else they could learn more about it, but just in case, where, well, where can we... Well, they can always they... check out our website, hallandnothingproductions.co.uk, and we are active on Twitter and Facebook. You can search for us or the game, uh, and we're on Board Game Geek as well. Um, probably my favourite thing would be if people went away and researched the battle itself, you know, and then decided <laughs> yeah. whether or not they uh, they were still interested. And, and that's been probably the most exciting discussion in the comments section is with people who have gone like, wow, you know, I, I either knew a little about this game or I didn't know about this game or I knew loads about this game. Here's what I, you know, here's what I want to see in it. And having those people come up with the actual uh, history or either jump into the history and learn about the battle, that, that for me, I really buzz off. Yeah. Because it's like, before I started this game, I had such a, a very small uh, scope of knowledge about it. And I don't, I still do. I don't profess to be a historian or, you know, um, like professional sort of history person. But the fact that I was able to have carve out a huge chunk of my time to look into it and, and go through the history and, and learn as much as I can about it, for me, that's a real pleasure. And so seeing other people do that as well is brilliant. Yeah. And we've got a great discussion going in the comments about like prospective future theatres of conflict as well. And it's really fascinating to see what, what people um, feel, which battles are important to them and yeah. which ones they'd like to be re represented in the system. So 
um, all of that stuff. Just geeking out generally is, is fantastic. It's, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, there's um, you know, there's there's few sort of battles where so much lore gets you know seeped into it. Really, you've, you've picked two of the the really big ones, some of the really good ones there. Um, if we stick into the formula of adding about 500 years to each game, then surely the next <laughs> one's Operation Desert Storm. Is it 1986 <laughs> or some such? I'd actually really like to do a game based on a modern battle, and I did start designing like a Special Forces Behind Enemy Lines game, and um, it was called Odark 100, and it was about kitting out your troops, dropping them into a, a theatre of conflict, and then sort of trying to achieve a mission and fight your way out. And then I played DVG's Warfighter. I was going to say, did Warfighter like, happen? Yeah, they've done it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they've done it better than I probably could. So I'll just buy that and play that. <laughs> but no, I would like to do a modern battle. I wonder how much... Um, I, what I would do is approach it from the perspective of if this system can support like a really um, fast-paced like machine gun type battle with aircraft and stuff, then I'd do it. But I think probably... This system quite suits battles from the past more because yeah. the, then the armies are kind of more evenly matched. Um, so if there was a new way to approach it and do it like a brand new designer, I'd probably do that from a more modern battle. But I have thought about how you could open this system out into multiplayer, you know, and reflect different armies in World War One or World War Two, and, and players, you know, maybe a five-player game. Yeah. Um, any number, sort of. So, uh, no, that'd be an interesting design challenge for the future, but I, I don't know how serious your question was. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty tongue-in-cheek, but also if you can make it happen, you know. It's one of those. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, what are the? have you got other projects in line then for after 1565, um, the completion of the yeah. Kickstarter? Absolutely. So, um, we just released a picture today of the pre-production copy of Shadows of Killforth, which is landing, which part of me was almost like, maybe we can race... Shadows of Killforth and 1565 to the princess and see which one we can get out first because they might come, they might land quite closely together actually. Um, but Shadows of Killforth is a completely different game from 1565. It's a huge. It's a couple hundred more cards, isn't there? Really? There's yeah, more than twice the content. Um, like nearly 300 unique images. It's all fantasy yeah. adventure role playing uh, game. So I'm dead excited about that because um, it's just it, it's like coming home for me. It's like my version of Lord of the Rings. So uh, I can't wait for that to land. That's we're still taking late orders for that because it's not shipping out until um, December, January. Um, that's shipping out from the printers. And then once this is all wrapped and Shadows of Killforth is um, on its way, we're going to be launching Veil Wraith, which is uh, a, I think hope <laughs> is a very unique. Uh, world. It's basically set at the end of the world, after the end of the world. Yeah. And it's a one-player card game, which may or may not have multiplayer attached but when it releases. But it's a really fast-playing game. Basically, I wanted a lot of my games quite sort of involved. Um, 1565, you can play in like 30 to yeah, 30 minutes to an hour kind of thing, depending on your experience. But I wanted something you can just break out in your lunch break and play one player. And I've played a load of these 20 to 30-minute card games, which had just uh, really dull themes and boring artwork and stuff so yeah. i wanted to do something like that that was compelling quick to play and um, kind of campaign based so that if you so that you get progression between games um, but also with gorgeous artwork and we're sitting on so much of that um, and we have access to such brilliant artists i really wanted to give it a unique spin so i'm dead excited about launching that one um, and then next year 
we're going to do Sublime Dark, which is my horror. Oh, uh, I think it's going to be too much horror for me. <laughs> uh, I'm still getting haunted by the images from uh, UK Games Expo on the pop-up banner that you had. Oh, yeah, that's creepy. Pick, we had to pick a banner that was um, family-friendly. So we, <laughs> we chose the lamest monster, <laughs> the Joker monster, and he was still awful. Um, so yeah, I, I tasked the artists um, to try and make me feel sick. And they did. It's like, there's yeah. some of the monsters I don't even want to look at. Um, but I'm dead excited about that because it's just, I think it'll be the first of its kind. I've, I've seen loads of sort of horror games on the market, but I've never seen one that doesn't pull its punches in yeah. terms of the visual style. And so this is, I think it's going to be really cool uh, and different. Yeah. Um, but that's quite a way off yet. That's probably going to be sort of summer or, or later uh, 2020. Um, so we've got we've got loads in the pipeline if people will turn up and, and continue to support us um, because it's absolutely amazing. It's so cool to just be able to make games and, and live in a world of history or fantasy or horror and uh, and keep doing this. It's an absolute dream That's job. It. Just keep, just keep uh, to and fro in between the different genres. Yeah, uh, I'll ride it for as long as people let me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Oh, I think um, people go absolutely crazy for Sublime Dark uh, for several different reasons, especially if um, Daz gets his way with like the box art. Because I think uh, the Hall of Nothing, um, like your catalogue, it's got, you know, concept art, hasn't it? You know, just for yes. what the box might look like. And that looks absolutely beautiful. So, yeah. you know, it'll draw people in and then they'll just get absolutely disgusted by what's inside. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, that's it. Well, this was a lovely episode of Budget List. Thanks very much for sort of being a fake guest and talking to me about your upcoming projects. Thanks for convincing me to be the fake guest. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. It's quite quite easily done, let's face it. Um, right, well, I'll see you soon. And hopefully we'll have another episode coming out to you soon after this one, guys. So until then, thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.